walk around and disregard it. Should you walk around, show you what heart is. Standing strong and proud of me, and I can't. Let's get started. It's the hardest. Walk around and disregard it. Should you walk around, show you what heart is. Standing strong and proud of me, and I can't. Let's get started. Yeah, get your boots ready. We're about to go on a trip where we wrestle nobody, settling or calling it quits. You're here for the grit, betcha this stuff is amazing. You're stumbling, welcome to the bump in the apron. Step into it, the hardest part of the ring. Here to bring fun, yeah, and this art is king. It's the best thing, making sure you don't tap out. Don't go soft with the hardest part cast out. And it's not just another one, it's clear. Off the rest, in this content, none can test. Take the nonsense off the steps. You know it's nothing but Pure gems when it's coming off the chest. Get it? Now it's time to sit and relax. Get your mind blown away. Ain't no skipping this track. Have you paid more attention? No listening gap. Get everything I ever wanted. No giving it back. Yeah. Ooh, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Apron Bump Podcast. I'm your host, the hardest part of that there ring. Welcome to another episode of. Uh, some WCW action. The last WCW pay-per-view of 1995. Actually, if you've been following the old apron bump, you'll know that this is the final pay-per-view of 1995, uh, period. We covered uh, ECW Holiday Hell. We covered, we, we, we covered WWF Seasons Beatings. And now we got Starcade 1995. Leaving 1995 in the dust. Boy, howdy. What a dreadful fucking year 1995 was. And I like. Let me, th- let me throw this one at you real quick. Let me throw this one up your ass before we, 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 we move on here. Uh, 1995. There's a lot to talk about, right? Even though it seems like everything happened, but also nothing happened. 1995 had a lot of. Stuff happened. Not not necessarily good or bad. Uh, a lot of bad. But I've been thinking about doing like a retrospective type of episode. Kind of compare, comparing WCW, WWF, ECW. Maybe doing like a YouTube live stream of sorts or something. I don't know. Just, just I'm kind of, you know, flicking my pecker around thinking about that. So let me know what you think. Uh, let me uh, write your mail to... Uh, uh, the the last house on the left, um, parts unknown USA. So send all your mail there. Let me know what your opinions are, and uh, or you know, for us, uh, send me a DM down here. Right? I always forget. Like I put the shit on the screen, and I can just like say, "Hey, look at what show we're watching. Look at what show we're recapping. Check out these socials. Which side's it on? I don't know. Um, but anyways." But yeah, let me know what you think about that. And uh, Starcade 1995, I, I wouldn't say it's very representative of the year that WCW had. And we, we kind of talk about this on the podcast. Probably one of their better pay-per-views they put out, WCW did, uh, this year. A lot of that is because this, pay, this pay-per-view revolves around... Well, that re- it revolves... It's a revolving door of sorts, a revolving forbidden door. If I hear one more person saying forbidden door, I'm going to their house and I'm going to 
open up all of their loaves of bread and take out the bottom butt of the bread and touch every piece on the way down. Just so you, just so they don't even know that they they open up the bread like why is why is my bread all cattywampus and why does it taste like Kyle Bird's asshole? That that's all. I, that's the only. Um, what are we talking about here? Starcade nineteen ninety five. It is uh, Forbidden Door season in WCW. We have a seven match series WCW versus New Japan Pro Wrestling. Sound familiar? And uh, lots of legends in Japanese wrestling on this show, which is very interesting Interesting to see. You also, on the WCW side, of course, you got your Macho Mans, your Stings. You got Eddie Guerrero's in there. The Wunderkind, Alex Wright, is in there. All the faces you love to see. On top of that, we also have a triangle match between Ric Flair, Lex Luger, and Sting. The winner of that triangle match goes on into the main event to face the world champion, the macho man, Randy Savage. So high stakes all over this show. Uh, your hilarious promos, the ridiculous commentary. Does anyone get set on fire or anything in this show? I'm trying to think of what else happened here. You just got very animated Japanese villains. It's like right out of a Godzilla movie. Very interesting show, to say the least, but... I'm going to quit babbling here. Let's get into it. First, let me give a shout out to my guest, Ted, from the Heel Truth Podcast. You might know Ted as the Hillbilly Heel. Awesome, awesome podcast Ted has. He gets into a lot of heel-based topics, as per the title of the podcast. He, um, For example, he had me on a uh, one of his episodes. He was kind enough to bring me on. And uh, we talked about modern heels versus uh, old school heels, kind of the differences in heels and how it's progressed over time, what heels have to do nowadays that maybe they didn't get away with back then and vice versa. It was a fun talk with Ted. And uh, if nothing else, go check out that episode. If you if you want to dip your toes into his podcast, go check it out. But he has a ton of great um, topics that he gets into monster heels underrated heels, heel managers. He'll even give spotlights to certain wrestlers like Ric Flair, like Magnum TA, like other stuff like that. He's, he's an old school guy, so he has a lot of knowledge and he does it in a very entertaining way, as you'll see on this episode. So go check out Ted. Uh, follow him on Twitter, at Hillbilly Heel. All of his socials, all of his info in the description below. Wherever you find podcasts is where you can find the heel truth. So go check out my boy, Ted. And hey, if you like this type of stuff, maybe you're just jumping in. Maybe you're a first time bumper. You're like, gee whiz, Kyle, you're talking a lot about this 1995 nonsense. You make it out to seem like it's really, really the shits. I, that, that couldn't possibly be the truth. Well, hypothetical listener, let me tell you something. Let me tell you what to do. Sounds really aggressive. I feel like I'm in a WCW promo here. Let me tell you something. You see, go to apronbump.com. Go to apronbump.com. Go to the episodes tab at the top, and you can select any promotion, any era, any... I cover a lot of stuff on this podcast. A wide breadth. Breadth. Of, of topics ranging from the wrestling the pure wrestling of Ring of Honor and progress wrestling to the shenanigans of WCW and TNA 
to the high points of the Attitude Era and the ruthless aggression to the low points of the New Generation Era and ECW. Daddy covers it all. I can't get out of promo mode. All right. But go to, go to apronbump.com, hit the episodes tab, and you can select Wrestling Wars of the 90s, and that'll bring you to all of the WWF, WCW, and ECW shows that I've covered all chronologically. Pinge away. So do that. And uh, yeah, I think I think not, I think it's about time we start talking some wrestling, huh? Let's get funky like a monkey, like uh, one of the commentators on this show would say. WCW Starcade, 1995, with myself and Ted the Hillbilly Heel from the Heel Truth Podcast. Yeah, we've had uh, my sons had to use the uh, laptop, so. Uh... No worries. He's gone tonight, of course. Right, right. <laughs> no worries. As long as I get to, get to see that beautiful mug, that's all I ask. That's all I ask. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, so you got a chance to check out uh, Starcade 95? Oh, yeah. It had been a while, but I went back and watched it there. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you following WCW during this time period? Oh, gosh, yeah. 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 Is it, yeah I feel like it's kind of like your... Uh, is it, would you say it was like your peak wrestling fandom or maybe close to it? Um, really, my what I consider my glory years was uh, 85 through 87. Okay. Okay. And that's uh, like uh, Hacksaw um, or not Hacksaw. Who's who's no. the big who's the big country guy? Hey, Stacks Calhoun. No, that, that's up there. <laughs> oh, it was. Uh, it was all uh, NWA, uh, pre-WCW, Jim Crockett promotions, uh, the right. original Four Horsemen, Dusty Magnum, all that. Those were my glory years. Right, right, of course. Yeah, I'm, uh, I was born in 93, so anything before the 90s might as well be, might as well be <laughs> the Romans and the gladiators fighting lions and, and all that <laughs> stuff. So, <laughs> But it's cool. No, that's cool. But yeah, uh, Starcade 95, a little bit of a... Um, I guess an untraditional type of uh, WCW show really uh, revolving around the World Cup of Wrestling. So we got WCW versus New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's a, uh, a best of seven. So there's seven matches. It's each singles matches. You get one WCW guy, one New Japan guy. Uh, I guess overall that concept. What do you think of that concept? You know, kind of the interpromotional stuff and bringing in New Japan and uh, well, to me, on a, a grand scale, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, there'd always been a working relationship between Japan and the NWA. So it was no surprise. And then you could tell with uh, Nitro getting ready to start in 96 and Eric Bischoff wanting to bring in all these Japanese wrestlers that he was mm -hmm. starting to play with something there with that to, I guess, maybe get the fans ready for it and to uh, sort of play around with it some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Nitro actually started in uh, late 95. So at this point, it has already started. It's it's very early, though. So they're still kind of getting their, uh, their feet under them a little bit, still definitely in the building phases. But yeah. Yeah, to your point, New Japan would go on to be, or I guess it's Japanese wrestling in general, international wrestling would go on to be a, a, a big part 
of WCW a lot in the cruiserweight division mainly I feel like but um otherwise as well like this is kind of like the um the uh, opening opening those that forbidden door you know how the kids yeah. like to say forbidden door <laughs> the WCW did the forbidden door before uh Tony Khan even was a before AEW was even a gleam in his eye so right but yeah man so uh just getting right to the show I guess for first of all so commentary team, uh, as always, we've got Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan, but uh, special third Mike, Dusty Rhodes. And uh, yeah, what you, what you think of this this trio on the sticks on commentary? Uh, I, I enjoyed it when Dusty was on there with uh, Bobby and them. Um, yeah. It was pretty uh, entertaining. I always enjoyed Tony and Bobby. Uh, the one thing I did notice, and now looking back, Years ago, I didn't think about it, but Tony Schiavone would just, you know, now, thanks to Excalibur, he actually knows what some of these moves are. But back then, some of those moves, he was just saying, that was a devastating maneuver or something (laughs) like that, you know? Yeah. And it it was funny because he didn't know all the names like he does now. So uh, Mm -hmm. I thought that was real neat. Well, to be fair. Anytime Tony tried to name a move, he would get scolded by Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, the, the mafia kick and you know and all that. Ain't got nothing to do with the mafia. <laughs> all right, Dusty, that's the name of the move. German suplex. What? Well, we're not Germany. We're an hour. It's like that's sure, sure, Dusty. Whatever you say, a suplex. Everything's a suplex or a kick. That's all. That's all yeah. we say on commentary, I guess. Um, but man, speaking of suplexes and kicks, we got plenty of those in this opening match. It is uh, the first match of the World Cup of Wrestling. We got Jushin Thunder Liger versus Chris Benoit. And uh, Liger, I feel like already uh, a legend, even in 95, especially in the uh, the juniors division yeah. in New Japan. And uh, he's, he's accompanied by Sonny Ono, which I believe everybody from New Japan is accompanied yeah. by Sonny Ono. And first of all, I guess before we get into the match, the dynamic of like the Japanese wrestlers versus the WCW wrestlers, they're definitely portraying New Japan as the heel faction. And they even like get into yes. more detail with like the promos throughout the show with Sonny Ono and stuff. Um, what do you think about that? Because even like when heel WCW wrestlers would wrestle like Lex Luger, they'd be the baby faces in the match just because they're they're facing the dirty foreign heels, which we talked a lot about on your show. Um, what do you think about that dynamic, that that face heel dynamic? Yeah, and I thought the same thing. Like uh, the first thing that came to my mind when I was rewatching this was what me and you had talked about when you was on my show was yeah. that you know still back in the nineties you had that dynamic to where patriotism and uh, all you had to do was uh, be a foreign person and automatically you were the heel. A little Japanese flag on a on a chopstick. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that uh, the pure element of them being foreign is uh, enough to get people to boo them. I guess it's simpler time. Yeah, uh, simpler time. Um, but then we got Benoit, who uh, is not American either, by the way. But uh, he's a, a member. Of, <laughs> <laughs> he's a member of the Horsemen at this point. Uh, newly a member, which um, so he's he's with Pillman, Flair, and Arn Anderson, and, and Pillman leaves not too long after this. So I don't really know. I think I think Benoit still remains in the Horsemen, if I'm correct, right? When Pillman leaves, 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they've obviously got of uh, a lot of stock in Benoit. They've seen him in Japan and ECW, wherever else he's wrestled. So um, good start for him and an opening match against a legend in Japan. So uh, high stakes here. And man, this match, I feel like set the bar very high for the night. And I don't know of any other match on this card reached that height. No, I agree. Uh, this to me was as far as just the in-ring ability was probably the match of the night, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I think from what I remember when Benoit had been in Japan, so I think they'd faced each other several times before, so they knew mm-hmm. each other, and um, it was just a good dynamic and uh, just a great match. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the chain wrestling like just 20 seconds into the match, I'm like, God, this is so good. Cause it's like it's night and day between what I've seen from WCW, like in the past year of 95 and 94, a lot of it's like headlocks and, uh, it'll be, a uh, a janitor versus the baby face or uh, whatever forward heel number 47 versus Hulk Hogan. It's just, you know, chin lock, chin lock, comeback, finisher, all that stuff. But this felt like, Man, there was so much to it. Like I said, the chain wrestling, all the striking was super snug. The counters were really like smooth and all that stuff. Like you said, they faced each other a bunch. So they, of course, had that chemistry, uh, which helped a lot. You have Benoit. Whenever I watch Benoit matches, man, it's just like he has so much intent with everything he does. It's like he tries to kill you with every. Well, that's probably bad phrasing, but um, he tries to hurt you with every move that he does. Um, goes for a headbutt, misses. Uh, Liger's able to hit the Liger bomb for a two count, though, because he has a cocky cover, which is funny seeing Liger play the heel here. I don't know how often yeah. he did that in Japan, but all I've seen of him is just the the uh, the baby face that we're just happy to see from Japan. So it was a cool dynamic, I guess, from Liger here. Um, power bomb from Benoit finally hits the headbutt, uh, but before he can make the pin. The Taskmaster comes out. Kevin Sullivan of the Dungeon of Doom comes out and distracts Benoit. And uh, this allows Liger to hit a Hurricane Rana onto Benoit and roll him up for the win. And uh, so Liger gets the win and New Japan's up one to zero. And uh, I think Sonny Ono says in a promo later in the show that he basically paid off the Dungeon of Doom to help them help them out in this tournament. But um yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this match? Well, first, the hur- Hurricane Rana, as we know it now, I think Tony Schiavone called it a uh, leg head scissors takeover <laughs> or something like that. I guess. I guess he's. I guess it is. Yeah, uh, but it, the I expected, uh, you know, now watching it back and knowing how the politics and stuff goes, I could see why, you know, Liger's well-beloved. He had a, his own cartoon show mm-hmm. uh, in Japan, stuff like that. So definitely with the politics, uh, it was seen, you know, that Benoit would take the fall here. And they tried to, him being the new horseman, let's make it a little bit, wonky finish there with the distraction so you know it was what it was uh, i wouldn't have mind if it would have been a clean pin because the match was just so good right yeah yeah definitely um yeah like you said politics definitely has a 
apart, really in this whole show. Um, there's one match in particular. I'm like, oh god, of course. But um, but yeah, great match there. Great, great way to open the show. Um, could watch these two wrestle every day. But uh, speaking of which, another guy I could watch wrestle every day is Eddie Guerrero, who uh, has a little promo after the match with Mean Gene Okerlund. And uh, man, <laughs> old school 1995 Eddie Guerrero is such a departure from the Latino heat character that he would adopt later in his career. Just very, you know, plucky white meat baby face. Oh, I'm gonna go out there, give it my all. Like he doesn't, he barely even has an accent or anything. He's like, look, I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrestle. I'm gonna give it 110%. And then hopefully I'll, I'll get the win. So <laughs> what do you think of this version of Eddie Guerrero? Well, and that's the thing. I guess I'm so used to heel Eddie Guerrero. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten what a baby face Eddie Guerrero early nineties or mid nineties sounded like. And I'm like, uh, this is not very good at all. You know, I just, <laughs> I'm not enjoying this. I, you know, I understand where you're trying to come, but, uh, no, I just don't didn't care much for it, but I understand mm-hmm. what he was trying to do, but it was like, no, you're going to evolve into a great superstar one day, Eddie. Yes. You will have to become to, you will have to lie, cheat and steal to get there, but you will. Mm-hmm. You might, you might have to have a little relationship with China, um, a few, a few bumps and, uh, uh, potholes along the way, but you'll get there. You'll get there, Eddie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so after that, City yeah, you, you might have to fight for a child in a ladder match. Um, but it is what it is. But yeah. I mean, they were, they were pretty much all in with Eddie. Cause Eddie even said it in this promo that he's like, look, there's only, there was only seven people picked from WCW's entire roster to be in this tournament. And I'm one of them. So that, that says a lot. And in the previous pay-per-view, the World War III match, he was in the final 10. So, I mean, they obviously see a lot in him, just like they did in Benoit. They see a lot in Eddie and uh, can't blame them. Can't blame them for that. Um, but maybe somebody they didn't see as much in. Maybe they did. I don't know. Is uh, Alex Wright, the Wunderkind versus the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion, Koji Kanemoto, and I believe the title is on the line in this match as well, um, in addition to it being a World Cup match. So uh, Kanemoto, I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen any of his matches. I did a little research on him. He hasn't, he hasn't seemed to have a very significant career. I think he got hot in New Japan during their leaner years. Maybe he just didn't make a lot of noise over there. I know he was like, like in the finals or the semifinals of a G1 one year or something. So he, he was pretty involved in that in that mix there's just nobody was really watching it i guess but um kanemoto i mean i was really impressed by him i mean he was very um i guess he has a judo background so he's very um experienced in the martial arts and stuff and it was very clear with all the kicks he was throwing it's like this dude did not learn kicks in pro wrestling school he uh he he, he knows how to how to kick a guy's heart through his chest like it, there were some brutal kicks in this match um, fun submissions and stuff. And then you have Alex Wright, who uh, I don't know how old he is. He's very young, probably like 19, 20 years old here from Germany. And um, but yeah, there's fun facts about this match. First time that the IWGP junior heavyweight title has been defended in the United States, which is a uh, fun little addition oh, to this okay. show. Didn't know that. I didn't either. I didn't either. But uh, yeah, no dancing, not a lot of dancing from Alex Wright in his entrance. So he must mean business. And, uh, but yeah, I, I would say it was maybe not as good as the opener, but, um, 
watching these guys, I mean, Alex Wright's pretty hungry at this point, I feel like, and Kanemoto was just uh, fascinating to watch. So uh, I don't know. What were your thoughts on this match? Um, same thing. Uh, I didn't know all the background um, about uh, Kanemoto Kaj- there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Alex Wright was one of those. He had so much potential. And it was just like, what happened? You know, it's one of those what ifs mm-hmm. that you wonder about. I don't know if it was the dancing, a little bit of the gimmick that he never could shed. But, you know, his in-ring stuff was always great, I thought. Uh, the only problem I had with the match was the finish. Because mm-hmm. the the way the roll-up was, was almost similar to the Benoit and Liger match. Mm. You know, it was a little bit different variation, but you still had this, you know, back and forth. And then you had the the way the roll up is. And I thought maybe they should have gave a different finish. Right. Uh, for the match. But yeah. But to your earlier point, maybe the all these like out of nowhere roll up pins are just to kind of save face for the loser. It's like you could almost kind of pin it as yeah. like a a fluky win kind of deal but yeah i'm with you i'm with you it was very similar um but yeah on the way there you're not too much to it this is where i noted how dusty was livid when tony shivani called a suplex a german suplex uh yeah even though it's a german doing it like it's all there but like, all right dusty i guess it's right uh, yeah must be the black cowboy hat i guess those people don't like <laughs> when you call moves by their name but it's a whole other, uh, whole other episode in itself. But um, we got a slingshot splash by Alex Wright. He goes for a missile drop kick off the top rope. But uh, Koji hits him with a drop kick out of midair. And uh, they actually flip flop that later in the match where uh, Koji goes for a missile drop kick. And uh, Alex Wright hits him with a drop kick to uh, give him a little anti-air action. So good a little bit, a little bit of story in this short-ish match. But um Ultimately, like you said, uh, Alex Wright goes for like a springboard of some sorts off the top rope, but Koji trips him up. Alex Wright goes face first into the top turnbuckle, and then Koji just jackknife pins him for the quick win. So one, two, three, and New Japan is up two to zero. And uh, I don't know, I I feel like this match, it felt like it was good, but it seemed like the crowd didn't really (laughs) care a lot about it. Yeah, that was. It seemed like they were more into the first match than this one, and uh, I don't know again if it was the. Um, at least with you know Benoit being a horseman, yeah. Uh, even though the horsemen were heels, they were still cool heels, and you could get behind them. So it was like, do we really want to get behind Alex Wright or not? So because. Again, it's supposed to be America against Japan, and he's a German. So I don't know if that played into the national crowd's thoughts or not. Yeah, there have been no Americans so far in this show. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Do you think Alex Wright just didn't do enough dancing? Do you think if he danced more, the crowd would have been more with him? He may have if he'd have done more on his gimmick. Uh, And then that's the thing. Was he he told to go out and play it more serious or maybe – as a decision he made, but uh, I agree the the match, a lot of good moves, counter moves, but it was like the crowd was a little bit dead on this one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I forget. What, what is Alex Wright? What does his dance look like again? I forget. I like the only dance I can do is the up here. <laughs> slow white. Yep. That's uh, it. 
Yep. And a slow dance where I just move back and forth. Yeah. Like I'm boxing. <laughs> that, that's about it. I'm, I'm too, uh, I relate too much to that. Don't you worry. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, find a wall, put your back to it and just let it happen. But uh, speaking of against the wall, WCW is against the wall here. Uh, losing two to zero against New Japan at this point. And at this point, we get a, a little promo with Sonny Ono backstage with Mean Gene Okerlund. When uh, Sonny basically, he's like, hey, we're going to win and buy WCW. It's felt like just a cheesy villain out of a James Bond movie. But it's like, what? I, I appreciate that there's yeah. like some story to it. It's not just like a wrestling for the sake of wrestling kind of thing. Um, I think it's at this point where he says that he, he bought the services of the Dungeon of Doom, which I don't think they interfere. I don't think they played any part in the rest of the show, right? Or am I misremembering? No, it was just that one match. So it must have not paid him a lot. Must have been a cheapskate, this uh, the Sonny Ono. But, um, but after that, so so we opened the show with two uh, two very good matches of junior heavyweight action, and the third the third World Cup match, something a little different. We got Lex Luger. Versus Masahiro Chono. And uh, Chono, I guess, is the... Uh, I don't know if he invented the STF or if he's just the master of it. But um, it's a little fun fact that I learned on this show. And that was really my only note on this match. Uh, he had a really nasty-looking STF that looked good. But then Luger just wins with a... Um, I think Chono comes off the top rope with something. And Luger hits him with an oboe. And then just... Locks him in the torture rack for the win. Felt like this match lasted like 30 seconds, but um, the less, the less, the less is more with Lex, I guess. And I thought this was odd, too, that they would have made Chono maybe would have let it last a little longer because it was just, what was it? Uh, was it early 95 or 94 when um, he actually won the WCW title from Flair? Um, that would have been maybe early 94, maybe 93. Yeah. So, you know, for him to have held that belt where they'd done the cross promotional stuff before, Mm -hmm. I I thought maybe they would have let him, um, go a little bit longer, but maybe they were letting Luger go for a break since he was going to have to wrestle twice. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Chono, I mean, this is a guy that I'm familiar with, or at least I've heard the name. So he's, Definitely a big deal in New Japan, and like you said, has even held WCW World Title gold. So yeah, to that, that's a good point. It's weird that the first definitive loss is Chono here losing to Lex Luger by submission. But I guess Lex is in the main event, like you said. Maybe got to preserve him a little bit, and uh, that's kind of a theme here. Uh, we'll see that later in, in Sting's match as well and Macho Man's. Um, but yeah, so WCW gets the win here. So now it's two to one New Japan. And uh, after that, we got we got Sting backstage with Mean Gene Okerlund. All I got to say is, and then a bunch of yelling and uh, typical Sting. Pro- well, yeah. What do you think of Sting's promo abilities here at this time period? Uh, they were pretty much all the same since, you know, he first came into WCW. It yeah. was, uh, um, you know, a lot of yelling, uh, just a lot of excitement. Even now, you know, uh, in AEW, the quasi-crow thing that he is now, uh, when he gets a little excited or he'll say something, try to be dark and ominous, mm-hmm. you can still see a little smile, try to crack up behind the makeup. He just can't help yeah. it. You know, you 
you can take the sting out of the surfer, but you can't take the surfer out of the sting. Man, those are wise words. Wise words. Are you totally right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's um, he, there's definitely like, always like a hint of like he, you could tell he knows it's ridiculous, but he just keeps on put powering through. Um, yeah, honestly, not a bad promo here from him. I mean, all the promos on this show, there's not a ton of substance to him. Like you said, it's a bunch of yelling and just kind of confirming the storylines. And, you know, Sting is in a triangle match later in the show. Which I don't know if I've mentioned. So we have all these World Cup matches and then we have a, uh, a triangle match. And the winner of that triangle match will go on to face Macho Man for the world title in the main event. So. And Sting will be in that triangle match, and he's facing off against Ric Flair and Lex Luger. And Sting and Luger have been friends, and they've been enemies, so it's like, oh, what side is he on kind of deal? So pretty much just uh, pounding that into uh, as, as the storyline here for the audience. But um, And then also, Sting will be facing uh, Kensuke Sasaki in, in the, the last World Cup match, and Sasaki beat him for the U.S. title. So there's some storyline threads intertwined through all of this. So. Um, but after that, we got the fourth World Cup of Wrestling match. We got Johnny B. Bad, accompanied to the ring by Kimberly, who he just recently stole from DDP, uh, versus yeah. Masa Saito. Man, Masa Saito. This man has no neck, but he is a pleasure to watch. What you, would you think of this match? Uh I thought it was a good combination because Johnny B. Bad is still a little green mm-hmm. and Saito has been around a long time. And I think his style with the less, you know, aerial moves and more of the hard hitting uh, went good with Johnny B. Bad to where he could lead him through the match. Yeah. So I do think they chose a good opponent for, for on that. Yeah. Yeah, Massacito, he's a mean-looking fella. And uh, those chops, those strikes he was throwing, brutal-looking. Um, with all the suplexes, of course, the Sather suplex and all that. Um, but I should mention the entrance. So, like I said, Johnny comes out with Kimberly. And Kim's out there. Like I said, she was with DDP for the longest time. Was getting, you know, verbally abused by DDP. So they had a match. Johnny and DDP did at the last pay-per-view and the winner got Kim's services, which Johnny B. Bad won. So now Kimberly's out there. She, they, she also has a bad blaster along with Johnny B. Bad. So yeah. dual bad blasters. That's uh, that's worth the price of admission right there. And um, <laughs> she, she's in the ring. Sonny Ono, of course, is with Saito. As he, like I said, he's with all the, the Japanese guys and he gets in there. He's like, this is what's wrong with America. This sport is just for men. And then Kimberly takes the mic and just blows my eardrums out. First of all, her voice is, uh, whew, yeah. it's a rough one, but, uh, she's like, Oh, this sport's just for men. Well, what are you doing here? Calling, calling, <laughs> calling Sonny a lady, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, not a lot to this match as other than Saito is just pummeling Johnny B. Bad, and uh, ultimately Johnny gets thrown over the top rope by Saito, leading to a disqualification via over the top rope. So Johnny B. Bad wins, 
in a uh, a rule that I feel like hasn't been applied in WCW in like a year or so since I've been watching this. Um, it's it's like they only apply it when they want to <laughs> apply it. But man, going into '96, and this is still a rule. This is this is mind blowing to me. And see, that's the thing. I'd forgot about it also because I thought I couldn't remember what year they finally got rid of it, but it was a mainstay in the 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, if you went over the top rope uh, and you've, uh, you know, forcefully did it, it wouldn't, through your momentum, uh, you would get disqualified. So, you know, many heel champions would use that to hold on to the belt. Just throw the guy over the top rope, you get disqualified, you get to keep the mm -hmm. belt. So uh, I'd seen it used many, many times throughout the 80s. And then when I rewatched this, I forgot. I was like, oh, I thought they'd already got rid of that. But uh, here they used it. And again, uh, I think that was just one of those political finishes. So, you know. Because you were watching in the 80s. So maybe you have a different perspective on it than I do. Has the over-the-top rope rule ever not been ridiculous? Or did it like make sense to you as you were watching? I, I, well, when when that was all you knew, mm. then um, you you didn't think twice about it. You just thought that's the way it was. You know, this is the way life is. If you throw them over the top rope, because see, the other thing was you didn't have all these over the top rope dives and things like mm. that. You know, you might would have somebody come up on the turnbuckle and jump off to the outside, but those were so few and far between. Um, and then I also think it went back to the battle royale, the over-the-top rope battle royal. So it was like the way you eliminated your man was over-the-top rope. So I think they just sort of kept that vibe going there. And right. uh, and then it was like, you know, because I, I often watch wrestling today, and, you know, my mind wanders back about, like, Oh, you can just throw people over the top rope. You can jump over the top rope. You know, you can uh, somersault over the top rope. You know, all this stuff that people had no idea that would ever be done. You know, because uh, to us back in the day, you know, uh, the off the top rope uh, body flying body press. You know, that was that was a big move. Mm -hmm. You know, the so, good old days. The good old days when it meant something. Yeah. You know, I still remember seeing a bootleg copy of uh, when Snooka come off the top of the cage onto Don Morocco. Mm -hmm. And that would just blew everybody's mind. Yeah. You know, that he would jump off the top of a cage, you know, and it's like, eh, you know, it's like now hold my beer. <laughs> let, let me show you what I can do now. You know, it's, yeah. Now, now it's just a, a cutoff in between move that you'll see on every Wednesday. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like uh yeah but it is what it is but yeah so two to two uh, again another <laughs> political finish i suppose to your point um but we have a uh the fifth match of the world cup of wrestling we got eddie guerrero versus shinjiro otani and um i saw the i saw shinjiro otani's name and i was like why does it seem so familiar and then i remembered he suffered like a brutal injury um a little over a year ago it was like a, a spine injury um don't know i mean i looked a little bit into it I, last i heard he got surgery and then he was kind of rehabbing um i don't know if you know about this or have any other notes about it but um no 
but yeah, that that's uh, that that was the first thing I thought when watching this match. But we got a, a very young version of Otani here against, uh, like we mentioned earlier, a very younger, greener version of Eddie Guerrero. Not, not green, I guess, probably the wrong word. He's been wrestling for probably twenty years at this point, and he's only twenty years old. Yeah, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that kind of brings. I was thinking as I was watching this, this show has allowed me to watch a lot of Japanese wrestlers that I've like always heard of, but never really sat down to watch. Like I never really sat down to watch a, like a Chono match or a, a Saito match. So for that reason, I mean, I enjoyed watching this show. Like, cause the experience, the experience of just witnessing these, these new uh, wrestlers, at least to me was, uh, was fun. But, uh, Watani out here, the black tights, black boots, looking like a young boy out here doing a lot of springboards. That was like, <laughs> Felt like the majority of the match is Otani just doing springboard drop kicks, and then he did a springboard splash to the outside. And then uh, back in the ring, you got Eddie fighting back with a splash mountain power bomb for a two count. Uh, Otani locks in a heel hook, which uh, I don't remember what Tony Schiavone called it, but it was not a heel hook, is what he said. <laughs> He's got a, a leg, a leg grab, grabber hold twist. Uh, <laughs> uh, Eddie. Busting out in, uh, a cross, a springboard cross body to the outside as well. Um, but Otani fights back on the outside, rolls Eddie in the ring, and then hits a nasty springboard drop kick to the back of Eddie's head. And then uh, goes for a power bomb. Otani does, but Eddie reverses it into a roll up. And then Otani reverses that roll up into another roll up for the win. So kind of Running theme here, a lot of roll-up victories on this show, and uh, Otani is the next one, so uh, making it 3-2 New Japan, but um, this match was pretty fun, I guess. It, you know, I, I guess compared to the, maybe some of the other matches, maybe not as good, but um, for WCW, this this fast-paced style was a breath of fresh air, I thought. Yeah, and uh, again, I, I think this was, you know, and like I said, I don't know, but I, I think this was a... Um, really a test for this pace mm-hmm. Eric Bischoff to see as Nitro would go forward in that cruiserweight division to see what kind of reaction it would get. Just my yeah. opinion. You know, I don't know, but um, I, I do think it's some because, you know, you, you had all these other storylines, but this took the focus of the pay-per-view. And, you know, again, with the political stuff, you allow the uh, youngest stars that are up and comers, you allow them to take the pin, mm-hmm. you know, so you got your established guys can win and the, they're, but they're showing what they're doing. You, you know, especially the first match, the, the fans were really into it. So we would see this theme as Nitro would go forward with this cruiserweight division, because just about every Nitro you would, just sort of like they do today, you know, you open up with that high-paced, fast match that gets the crowd going to set the tone for it. Yeah, for sure. And yet, like I said, Nitro's still early in their uh, days here. They haven't introduced the Cruiserweight division yet, no title. But yeah, like you said, uh, this, this probably is a test for that style. I mean, we've, we've seen people like Benoit and Eddie on Nitro. We've also seen like Dean Malenko. Another, you know, New Japan guys that are in that cruiserweight kind of uh, build here. So, um, yeah, very much a, uh, like I said, night and day from 94, 95, when all the matches felt like it was like boss man versus Vader. And you got uh, William Regal versus the 
Brutus, Brutus Beefcake. It's like it's just those kind of matches. So um, Macho Man over here. He says uh, he's backstage with Mean Gene. Classic Macho Man here. And uh, he, he alludes to the suspension, or maybe it's Gene does, of uh, Hulk Hogan. So H- Hogan, he uh, lost the title at World War III. Um, he was cool with Macho Man, but at some point he came in on Nitro and attacked a couple refs with steel chairs. And uh, they suspended him for um, I don't know how long, but he was not on this show. And uh, they're basically acknowledging that to, I guess, specify why Hogan's not here. Um, but yeah, well, what are your, what are your thoughts on no Hogan on a, a big pay-per-view like Starcade? Um, I'm thinking that I remember later on at, you know, it was odd at the time, but I think years later I'd heard that it was either an injury or he was doing a TV show or a movie. Was he doing, uh, what was it? Mr. Nanny? I don't remember, but I think that was the reason they re- uh, they they wrote him off. But it was odd uh, for him at this time not to be on a pay per view. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also remember Eric Bischoff talking about on his podcast um, when Hogan initially signed with WCW. The whole part of it was was getting into more films and TV series, and that was part of the thing through. Uh, Turner and uh, all that kind of stuff, part of the negotiations to set him up more Hollywood yeah. stuff. Do you have any favorite Hogan movies or TV shows? Not really. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I've, I don't know, know if I've seen uh, any personally. Um, I guess I'll, I'll go back to the OG uh, with uh, Rocky Three when he made that debut with <laughs> Thunderlips. Was that his debut? I think that's the only time I've seen Hogan in a movie is Rocky three. Uh, I mean, he may have been in something B before that, but you know, that the yeah. big movie that really put him on the map. We'll put it that way. I guess, I guess. Was he ever on the map? I don't know. Um, what was, what was the movie with uh, Zeus? Uh, no holds barred. That's a good one. Right? No holds barred. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was some spy movie too. I thought he was in. Yeah. Man, just gold after gold after gold from Mr. Hogan. Um, but Hulk's not here, but you know who is? It's Tenzon facing off against Randy Savage here in the sixth World Cup match. So uh, New Japan's winning three to two. So if New Japan wins here, they win the whole thing. But uh, the world champion of WCW is here. And uh, even though Tenzon kind of dominates the beginning with a bunch of strikes and elbows and kicks and chokes and stuff like that. Uh, Savage is able to hit him with a suplex from outside of the ring in kind of, he kind of botches it, but he also has the injured arms. I don't know if they're trying to put that over or yeah. not. Um, but then Savage hits the elbow for the win. Another really quick match. It felt like, um, but again, Savage is, has another match. So I get maybe he's, they're just preserving him, but uh, yeah, pretty, pretty cut and dry win here for Savage for Savage. what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I thought this was odd. I mean, I understand them uh, wanting their big names, but with him having the world championship match, you, you know, I guess I was trying to think back on the roster, who else they could have put, but, you know, uh, it was what it was, but it was quick, just to the uh-huh. point, trying to sell the arm. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, maybe they thought the more Macho Man, the better. But uh, eh, who knows? Um, yeah, I can't think of anybody else who would have been. I mean, I'm sure there are people, but I guess no one better than Macho Man, I suppose. Uh, but after that, so we are down to game seven here. So the World Cup of Wrestling comes down to this. We got Sting versus the United States champion, Kinsuke Sasaki. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier, but Sasaki beat Sting on a, uh, I believe it was like a separate, I think it was a New Japan show, maybe. Um, it was yeah. separate It was separate from WCW, for sure. And um, so Sasaki's out here with that title. Sting comes out with the big old American flag. And uh, match gets underway again. Not, I feel like there's not a lot to this match. Uh, Sasaki locks in the Scorpion Deathlock at one point. I don't know if that's like a move out of his arsenal or if he's just sending a message to Sting. But uh, Sting fights out of it eventually and locks in his own Scorpion Deathlock. And Sasaki taps out or he submits. And WCW gets the win. They win the World Cup in a pretty anticlimactic fashion, I feel like. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that was the thing. I mean, I understand you bring your, you know, Sting in. Um, and like you said, he just lost the U.S. title in Japan a few months before that. Um, again, political. It was one of those things, I think, they said, we'll let you all keep the U.S. belt for a few months. You send him over in a non-title. Uh, let Sting beat him so we can win this uh, cup that we're uh, trying to promote. And mm-hmm. um, it was just a basic Sting match. Um, you know, again, I don't know if they were trying to preserve him because, you know, Sting had to go and wrestle immediately after this in the triangle match. So uh, it was pretty quick. And uh, it was just there. And like you said, they just all gather in the ring, heels and faces alike, everybody holding the cup because everybody knows that a victory like this unifies America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it brings the country together. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to yep. Sting. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the, I don't know. The structure of this show, I feel like they almost should have opened with Macho Man, and then maybe the second match is the Sting match. Because hey, how, how it's laid out here, you have a Macho Man, then a Sting match, then a Sting match, then a Macho Man match. So it's almost like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, do you do you is that how you would have done it if you could have built this card? No, I, I mean, I like the idea, but I guess the other thing to me that took away from the whole cup thing was you're going to have this pay-per-view, then you're going to have your regular WCW wrestlers then for the world title. You know, mm-hmm. it was like um maybe have some Japanese wrestler that but again they probably weren't known as much back then because you didn't really have internet and, and yeah. access unless you had a, a satellite uh as big as uh your front porch that you could watch Japanese wrestling on. Mm-hmm. So it was just an odd I mean I like the concept of it, but like you the structure of it, it was like, okay, we're gonna do this cup then a triangle match in the world championship. And the way it was set up, I think, like you said there, I think the structure of it could have been a little better. Yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. But uh, that leads us 
into that triangle match. So, uh, and like I said, it, the winner of this match becomes the number one contender for the WCW heavyweight title, and they will uh, fight for that title right afterwards. Um, so this triangle match is Sting versus Lex Luger versus Ric Flair. So uh, storyline-wise, there's the underlying story of Sting and Luger being friends, uh, even though Luger's kind of a heel and Sting's a babyface. So the whole dynamic there is kind of up in the air. So this kind of match is structured in a way to where Lex Luger pretty much has to pick a side and you have Ric Flair, who's always in the title picture. <laughs> the four horsemen's kind of being built up pretty strong at this point. So he's obviously a threat. And then uh, you have Sting, who just brought this country together. So all guys, viable <laughs> contenders for the world title here. And uh, I guess, first of all, the triangle match concept, because this is not a triple threat match. This triangle match, basically, you have two people fighting in the ring. And then you have the third guy on the apron and they have to tag in to get into the match. What do you think about that, that, uh, that match concept, I guess? I did not like it. <laughs> I just didn't, yeah, uh, but it, it was weird. But then on the other hand, I guess they were trying to, I don't know if it was to rest. So the other two could rest. Mm. Uh, Cause you know, at the beginning of the match, it was pretty much flair against both of them uh, for quite a long time there. And since he hadn't wrestled yet, uh, but yeah, yeah, I didn't really like the concept of it, but you know, uh, again, I guess they were experimenting, trying something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, cause like you've been watching wrestling longer than I have, have triple threat matches not really been a thing prior to 95. Um, not really. I mean, you know, I thought about that when I was watching it and I was trying to think. And you didn't really have a lot of multi-man matches. You know, you had your tag matches and your battle royals. Uh, you, you had a lot of six-man tag matches. But, you know, I can't really think, you know, off the top of my head. I'm sure there was some maybe a triple threat type match, but it, just nothing that stood out to me that I can remember. Yeah. Yes, to that point, it might just be a foreign concept. I mean, with us in hindsight, obviously, we can just, oh, well, let's put them all in the ring at the same time. But maybe at the time, it was just kind of a uh, a weird, you know, because I, I know at Bash at the Beach 95, they had a triple threat tag team match. And that was a yeah. mess. That <laughs> They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Clearly, like I said, a foreign concept. They didn't know who could pin who, how many people could be in the ring, how to, you know, it was just, like I said, it was just a mess. It was a cluster. So um, maybe we're still at a point where we're figuring out how to um, have three people in a match in a cohesive way. Cause you think about it, like, okay, it's three guys that are attacking each other at the same time. Like, how's that going to be a, a wrestling match that people can follow, but they would eventually figure it out, I guess. Um, but yeah, so uh, it starts out with sting and Ric Flair. And you got Luger out there on the apron. It's Luger doesn't tag in for it feels like 10 minutes at least. Um, yeah. I guess he needs some uh, some time to rest to your point. But uh, Sting and Flair go at it. You know, your typical <laughs> Sting and Flair stuff that you would generally see. Um, got a question for you. How many time? how many gorilla press slams do you think Ric Flair has taken in his career? I, I don't. If I had a nickel for everyone, I'd be filthy rich. Um, <laughs> it's and be they hundreds. said that 
you know, and back in the day when they would call these matches uh, in the ring and usually the heel would call it, they said Flair would do that all the time. He would just mm. um, come up, whoever was Sting or Luger or uh, I think the Giant a few times and some of these others, and he would like press slam me, press slam me, you know, and <laughs> they just do it. And, it's his favorite because uh, Sting did it to him here. And then eventually uh, Luger would tag in. He would tag like tag Sting's back or something. So it'd be Luger versus Flair. And then Luger would <laughs> press slam him. It's like every I feel like every time I watch a Flair match, he's getting picked up over somebody's head and dropped. Yeah. I don't know how that man and his hip are still remotely moving, much less having a match <laughs> just a couple like a month or two ago. Uh but yeah, so uh, Luger and Flair go at it for a bit. Uh, Flair even at one point, Sting has the ref distracted and Flair hits Luger in the legs with a chair. And uh, eventually Flair tags in Sting. So now we got Sting and Luger going at it, which is kind of the whole basis for this. It's like, oh, what are they going to do? Are they going to be friendly or are they not going to be? And Luger definitely was not because at first they're kind of just grappling, you know, tie ups, lock ups. And then Luger is the first one to strike with the kick to the stomach. And then he's just striking him. He's stepping on Sting's throat. He uh, at one point, Sting tries to lock in the Scorpion Deathlock, but Luger fights out with a low blow. So Luger's showing his true colors here. And uh, eventually he locks Sting in the torture rack. But then the ref, I don't know, I guess a gust of wind came in and knocked the ref over. So he's out. He's down. And uh, Flair comes in with a chop block to Luger and uh, sending Luger to the outside. And then Flair picks up Sting and tosses him over the top rope. A dastardly heel. Ref didn't see it, though. Yep. But then Flair picks up the ref, tells the ref to count them out. And then that ref counts them out. So it is a double count out. So Ric Flair wins. Because uh, you know, Sting tried to get back in, but Luger grabbed him, and neither guy made the 10 count. So Ric Flair wins in such a Ric Flair fashion and will go on to face Macho Man in the main event for the title. So, uh, yeah, what were your thoughts on this match? Uh, you know, of course, it, like you said, one of those finishes, um, I can see they were setting up more of the storyline with Luger and Sting, Luger pulling on his arm, and is there friendship, and... Uh, in the immortal words of uh, WWE, can they coexist? Oh, no. So, you know, they sort of have that dynamic. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was one of the screw finishes. Um, and But it was a typical Flair match. Uh, Flair, you know, whatever you think, he knows how to make people look good. He knows how to bump, and uh, he can wrestle, and he can cheat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was just a, a Flair match, and... Uh, he was ready to go, which, uh, you know, again, with the way the structure was, and I thought that was sort of a thing, too, was that with Luger and Sting already wrestling two matches, I don't think they're going to be one that will win and wrestle a third match on the night. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that, that's an interesting uh, point because Flair did not have a cup match. So this he was fresh yeah. as a daisy going in that triangle match. But I guess maybe that's the mentality because, you know, spoiler alert, not only would he win the triangle match, but he would win the main event. So I guess maybe that's just a way for them to save face for the baby faces. Maybe that's another way they can put more heat on flares. Like, oh, he didn't wrestle as many matches, and that's why he won 
the world title. Maybe that was the thinking or I don't know, but it just it, it felt <laughs> just unfair, I guess, as a, as a viewer. But I, I guess that's the uh, the emotion they're trying to pull out of me. So, uh, but yeah, the main event, Randy Savage, the macho man, the champion defending against Ric Flair. Uh, at one point, Paul Orndorff comes out because on Nitro, the horsemen, mainly um, I think it was Arn and Pillman, gave Paul yep. Orndorff a spike pile driver on the, the concrete floor out by the stage area. And uh, I believe that would pretty much be the way to write Paul Orndorff off just forever. I think I don't think he had any other matches after that. Um, am I right on that or did he have more matches after that? I can't remember. I'd have to go back and look on that. I can't remember, but it seems like that was getting close to the end of that run there. Mm-hmm. Maybe he had a few matches here and there, but I think as a full-time guy, I think Orndorff's done here. But uh, he comes out. I don't know if they're building to something, him as a manager or what, but he comes out and kind of just looks at Flair, and then security walks him out. Doesn't really, come, doesn't really play into the match at all. It's kind of a weird thing. Um. But the match is what it is. Not the best Macho Man versus Flair match I've ever seen, but both guys have wrestled already, and that's the whole thing. And uh, at one point, because Jimmy Hart's out there with Ric Flair, and uh, Flair grabs his megaphone, tries to hit Savage with it, but Savage steals it and gives him a really terrible-looking shot in the head with this megaphone. But it's Ric Flair, so he's gushing blood. So much blood, an obtuse amount of blood from this megaphone. Uh, Macho Man's able to hit the elbow on Ric Flair, but it's at this point where the horsemen come out. Brian Pillman and Chris Benoit, they storm the ring. Macho Man disposes of both these guys. I think he like head clunks them or something, whips one into the other. Um, but this allows Arn, Arn Anderson, the enforcer, to sneak up from behind with, I think, his brass knuckles or something. Clocks Macho Man in the face with it. Flair crawls to the cover, soaked in blood, but gets the one, two, three. Ric Flair for the 12th time, world heavyweight champion. And uh, yeah, I guess it wouldn't be a Starcade without Flair walking out as champion, huh? Yeah, it was. Um, I remember back in 95. Um, seen this and I was elated that you're getting a, uh, a you know a complete version of the horseman here mm-hmm. typical beatdown stuff even though it was a little wonky it was like it took forever yeah and the referee was so distracted with Jimmy Hart that it was like okay you can't disqualify or see all that's going on behind <laughs> you um, but Personally, being a horseman mark the way I've always been, I was glad to see him. Um, I guess, you know, I was excited. I thought this was going to be a resurgence of the horseman. But then, of course, uh, Pillman goes off and then he's gone. And then, you know, you've got the whole Dungeon of Doom against the horseman. The NWO show up and it really wouldn't. But I really would have liked to seen a long run with this four. You know, I think it would have been really interesting. And I thought it might have been a good uh, mixture of these four if Pillman would have ended up staying around. Uh, So Mm -hmm. uh, I remember at the time being very excited because I was thinking back today. I can't prove it, 
But uh, my oldest son, who's just a couple years younger than you, um, he's in his mid-20s. Uh, he um, was born in September. Mm-hmm. So this mat, this pay-per-view happened in December, which would have been nine months before. So there's a possibility. I was so happy. He could have been conceived <laughs> right after Starcade. Man, Ric Flair does that for you, huh? Yes, the horseman, baby. Yeah, woo! You know, <laughs> is that your? Uh, is that the noises you make in bed? You just a bunch of Ric Flair. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me tell you something. <laughs> oh man, there's a lot of four fingers. Uh, uh, this oh. is a true story. Uh, when me and my wife got married, uh, when we uh, kissed the bride and we're walking down the aisle and uh, going to the back of the church. Uh, uh, a little section of my friends that I went to high school with were at the back of the church there all together. And as we were walking by, and you can even see it on the video we took, I flash him the four horsemen symbol as we go by. <laughs> that's amazing. Do you have the, uh... yeah, uh, that's really all. That, that's a dream. I mean, I'm getting married myself here in two months. So maybe I'll try to get that together with some of my friends. Although my, my generation is yeah, more like too a, sweet to them or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> about to say like an NWO bullet club, maybe a DX chop or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it yeah, out. Well, be careful about the crotch chop. That one might be taken <laughs> by the in-laws a little bit. Uh. No, no, it's wrestling. It's sports. Grandma. It's okay. Uh, I did give my groomsmen uh, wrestling socks to wear. They're like really bright, colorful okay. socks that have wrestlers on it. So that'll be my little. Ooh. My little, my, I, I couldn't get uh, title belts. I, I didn't get that one over with the bride, but uh, maybe, maybe, maybe when we renew our vows, we'll have little tag team belts or something. Yeah, there you go. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, so that, that's pretty much how the show ends. Flair holds the title high. Well, actually, before he holds the title, uh, Brian Pillman, the loose cannon, which by the way, <laughs> take a drink every time the announcers call him the loose cannon. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah hammering that one home but uh he takes the world title belt whips macho man like really hard with this belt over and over again and then uh then he gives it the flare and then they walk off and then <laughs> the show kind of ends but uh yeah so um flare on top luger sting who knows and uh the japanese are inferior so any other thoughts on starcade 1995 <laughs> uh well, like you said, um, the structure of the, the uh, matches was a little off, I thought. But uh, some of the early matches, especially when we watch wrestling today, and if we understand that a lot of this high flying, a lot of this Japanese stuff, and with the uh, Benoit and Eddie Guerrero and even Alex Wright, all this was starting to build momentum into that cruiserweight division and seeing these different styles and different Mm -hmm. wrestlers. Because, you know, once that cruiserweight division got going on Nitro, you'd see the uh, luchadors that would come in. You'd see Japanese wrestlers that would come in. And it really sort of set the tone for what we see today. Uh, Because, Mm -hmm. you know, know, I still tell people – go back and watch the Halloween Havoc with Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero. And that match would hold up against matches today. Absolutely. In my opinion, you know, and some of the things that they were doing, you know, um, I think didn't Benoit do a couple 
um, or was it Liger did on Benoit, uh, an actual uh, dragon suplex. Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple of those, like tiger suplexes and all that stuff on this yes. show. And, you know, and you think today we still see those type of moves. So uh, I think this was a good, some of the matches were really good. The, and like I said, the forerunner, but just the way the pay-per-view was structured, uh, I didn't mm-hmm. care for. And then, like I said, at the end, just being a personal fan of the horsemen, I was glad to see this iteration to come together and be united and beat someone down. And uh, so that was very good on a personal level, but uh, it was okay. Um, I've seen a lot worse pay-per-views. I'll say that from WCW. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) legitimately, this is probably the pay-per-view of the year for WCW. And it's almost in a way kind of a throwaway pay-per-view. Not a throwaway pay-per-view, but I mean... You definitely get the feeling that they're like preparing for 1996. Like you said, they're kind of testing the waters with the cruiserweight stuff, that style, you know, establishing a, a new champion and Ric Flair. But um, I mean, in ring wise, I mean, it started off hot, kind of petered out. But like I said, 1995 WCW, you're probably not going to get a lot better than this. So, um, yeah, uh, it was it was a fun watch for WCW 1995. But uh, and that's the truth. The heel truth. But speaking of which, once again, Ted, thank you for uh, making the time to check out the show and come on and uh, discuss it. Where can everybody find you and listen to Ted, the Hillbilly Heel and the Heel Truth? Uh, The Heel Truth, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Hillbilly Heel. You can find the Heel Truth wherever you find your audio listening pleasure, Spotify, Google, Apple, and all sorts of iHeart and anybody, anything like that. Uh, still the number one podcast in Antarctica. Uh, we're actually doing pretty good on the uh, Ireland charts. So, uh, you know, just listen. Uh, you can hit me up there. And, uh, you know, if you got any suggestions or anything like that, we appreciate it. Um, and I said on uh, one of my recent shows there, uh, be on the lookout. Uh, got a uh, possible meet and greet in Antarctica coming up later this year. And uh, also be a keynote speaker at a podcast symposium and workshop also in Antarctica. So if you're going to okay. be at the South Pole later on this year, look me up. The South Pole, isn't that... Uh, are, you familiar, are you familiar with Santa Claus from WWF? Uh, he's on the North Pole. I thought... no, he's in the North Pole. Santa's in the North Pole. Xanta with an X with an X is from the South Pole because he's oh okay okay this ball yeah see I haven't gotten to do it on my podcast yet but um eventually I'm gonna do a whole episode on my time as an independent wrestler in the Arctic Wrestling Federation oh uh, where I wrestled for years I was a tag team specialist I was uh, known as Legolas and uh, my tag team partner was Saint Nick. Okay. And we were the elves of destruction. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, well renowned. I mean, um, the Antarctic. We were international championship. I think that might be yeah. an AEW title, if I'm not mistaken. Well, uh, you know, we we had a, a longstanding feud with the Polar Bear Express, Polar Bear One and Two, which were real polar bears, uh-huh. by the way. Uh, they weren't. They weren't working polar bears. No, they were they were shoot polar bears. Okay, <laughs> okay. they were shoot polar bears. Uh, they were managed by Yukon Cornelius. Uh, great, great rivalry. Uh-huh. So, I'm starting to think you might be making this all up, Ted. 
No, baby. There's the real truth, then there's the heel truth. Okay. Cool. That's if that's not a way to end a show. Once again, thank you to Theodore for <laughs> joining me on this episode. Awesome time with Ted. Go check out the Heel Truth podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow him on Twitter at the Hillbilly Heel. All of his info in the description below. ApronBump.com for all my full episodes. You know the drill. Apron Bump on all social medias. I finally changed my Instagram. For, for the longest time, my Instagram was apron underscore bump. Don't know why. Uh, didn't know you could just change it, so I did. And uh, <laughs> I, I, for some reason, I just assumed somebody else had it, but nobody did. So, so now everything's the same. Everything's apron bump across the board. Go follow me on TikTok, too. Twitter, of course, is probably where I'm most active these days. Uh, there's a Facebook, too, if that's if you're a 43-year-old mom playing Candy Crush listening to this. Go check me out on Facebook. And, um, yeah. Thank you for joining me on this journey of 1995. It's been a... Um, how can I describe this year in a way, uh, in, in the layman in a way that everybody can kind of understand. I mean, the best way to understand is to go back into the archives and listen to them all. But if you just want me to describe it now, shit. Um, you know, like if you you were like, you know, just hypothetically, you were like, say you're like at an amusement park or something, you're waiting on a ride. Maybe, maybe a, a water slide of sorts. You're waiting in line, you're waiting in line. You get a little anxious you get a little nervous because you're not, you know, you're you're 11 years old and you you're kind of scared of these kind of rides. So you're waiting in line for a long time, and you have to take a shit, but you don't have time. You try to keep it in, but it kind of slides out. But you think you got it stuck in your shorts, so it's okay. But then it slides down your leg, and it, you see it plop on the concrete, but nobody else saw it fall out of your shorts. So you keep walking along and then somebody sees the shit and they're like, wow, somebody took a dump right on the concrete. And you're like, yeah, that's weird. So you keep walking along like nobody ever noticed. And then you get to the slide and your friend that you're with notice a skid mark on your calf. And then uh, you go through the water slide and uh, you continue on like that never happened again. That's kind of what wrestling in 1995 felt like watching it. If you're, if you're an 11 years old, 11 years old. I mean, this is hypothetical. I mean, it's whatever, but. Yeah. I'm hard. Should you walk the ground, show you what heart is Standing strong and proud, nothing can